in 730, come to catechesis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, who desires not the death of the wicked, convert those who hate us without a cause, and turn the hearts of those who persecute your Christians. Protect the poor and the innocent against the oppression of unjust men. Grant us patience under the cross, and preserve us in the true faith all the days of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. That was the prayer for the psalm for this week, Psalm 54, which does talk a good deal about Christian persecution. And so the prayer is drawn from that. The verse for the week is 2 Samuel 22, 2 through 3. It's part of the Old Testament reading for this week. The Lord is my rock. 
and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. It is in that Old Testament reading for the week that we hear themes that are connected to the gospel with the shrewd, you will show yourself devious. That's speaking about the Lord. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. Here's, what is that about, you know? Well, here's something to think about. You and I, no one can outfox the Lord. We can't hide from him. There's not a word on our lips, but that he knows it all together. The thoughts of our minds, the deepest secrets of our hearts, He knows. We might think of ourselves as being quite clever as we disguise what we really are before others, but we cannot disguise who we really are before the Lord. So the deviousness and the trickery and the hypocrisy that we might engage in to paint ourselves in a different light The Lord himself knows, and he may use his own trickery, if you will, his own deceptiveness, his own foxiness, to bring us to repentance. Okay, And repentance at its heart, as we've been saying, the fleeing from self to reliance upon Christ always carries with it Confession. And in the confession of sins that we make before God, and we're really called to make before one another, but it's so hard to do, is the acknowledgement of who we really are without an excuse. Yes, Steve, I, I did this, I'm really sorry, but I had a bad day. As if me having a bad day gives me the right to shaft you in some way, okay? So this curious passage, now it's not here, but it's it's prior to this in the Old Testament reading. If you weren't in the first service, you'll hear it in the second service. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. With the merciful, you will show yourself mercy, merciful. Uh, The pure heart is the one that turns from self and lives in mercy and forgiveness to others, period. All right, so that's that. Now then comes the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, Not the unmerciful, that's coming up next week. Uh, The parable of the unjust steward. So um, I had some people leave this morning saying, I'm not certain I understand the parable any more than I did before. (laughs) Which then answers the question, you know, can I... Do I know how to do this preaching thing? I've been uh, out of the pulpit for a while, and obviously the answer is no, so we'll keep working at it. The challenge with the parable of the 
just steward is that it conflicts with our normal sensibilities. And our normal sensibilities are always corresponding with a works righteous faith. So it's easy to be nice to Jordan here. Why? Because Jordan's a nice guy. And so you see, <clears throat> no one would quibble with that. Jordan's a nice guy. It's nice to be nice to the nice, as uh, uh, Dr. Burns said in MASH, right? It's nice to be nice to the nice. It's easy to be nice to the nice. But if Jordan were a scoundrel, and I was nice to the nice, well, not to the nice, to the scoundrel, then John over here says, do you realize what kind of a guy he is? Don't be taken in by his deviousness and his shenanigans. We live by faith in the grace of God, not by human merit. Do you see the point here? In other words, it is the call of the gospel to faith in Christ's mercy that's undeserved and unmerited which governs how I treat the scoundrel Jordan. Instead, the natural inclination of our flesh, and we think that it is normal, is we're not going to be nice to that person unless he is nice to us and worthy of it. That's a works righteous faith. That's part of our old sinful nature. It's part of the world. But as part of our sinful nature, it is our way of dressing up our sinfulness <clears throat> and justifying it. So that's why when Jesus takes an example of a man who had a stewardship from his master, but then there's an accusation against him that he's squandering his master's goods, he's going to be put out of the stewardship, and we'd say, yeah, 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 put him out. Send him into the unemployment line. Make him pay for what he's done. While he still has the authority of the stewardship in hand, he alters accounts because he had the authority. He was still the steward. He signs off on them, and his master is obligated to honor those, those agreements. And then we're shocked because the master comes, and instead of saying to him, you wicked steward. You're not only going to be put out of the stewardship, you're going to be sent to prison for the rest of your life for the thievery that you've engaged in. We're shocked because the master commends the unjust steward. And then Jesus says, so the sons of this world, which would be the unbelievers, those who do not even know the gospel, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light, those believers who know the gospel. They're more shrewd. What are they shrewd about? Well, consider what the unjust steward did. He understood the benefit of extending mercy to his master's debtors. If I alter Steve's account and I sign off it, he's in the free and clear, and his debt has been reduced by half. Say, I need a favor for you. Can I get it? Sure. 
And so the first point that was made in the sermon this morning is how the sons of this world are often quicker to understand the benefits of mercy than Christians who ought to know mercy best of all because they've been a recipient of it. And that's why I use the example here with it's nice to be nice to the nice, Jordan, but if we find out he's a scoundrel, then we don't want to be nice to him. You can get out of here. And notice how that conflicts with living by faith in the grace of God. Now, here's where everybody hangs up. Does, is Jesus telling us to cheat people? Of course not. But what he is zeroing in upon is the savvy that sometimes unbelievers have. People in business do this all the time. A salesman, you know, maybe he's blowing smoke, right? But he treats those he's trying to sell a product to with great generosity, knowing that if he, you know, why do, why do you think they have these, have you ever been invited to the Fox and Hounds or to... Uh, um, whatever other restaurant for a gourmet meal, you don't have to pay anything. All you got to do is listen to the pitch. Because they know that people are persuaded by that. It's worth it for them to pay the restaurant for these dinners and to offer them free because they know they're going to get business in return. Now, you see, they understand that. Maybe we'd be better off in the church if... We'd, um, you know, offer this, that, or the other thing. for. Maybe we should offer the fish fry for free, you know, and then, wow, that's some kind of church, okay? But that's the point that Jesus is making first, okay? But Pastor Gelbach has his hand up, so he wants to talk. Just one of the things about parables, it's always... A lesser to the great, a great, a lesser point to the greater point. That the all the parables have it in a sense of worldly imperfection in our view. This is one I think has bigger uh, things that we can't grasp. But that this story that we're trying to tell, and uh, that pointing to a higher, a greater point. Right, and and the other thing if, uh, with this, from the lesser to the greater. Uh, and Luke's gospel is filled with parables that are like a pitcher who specializes in a screwball or a knuckleball. What's the, what, what's the characteristic of a knuckleball, those of you who know uh, pitching? It floats. Yeah, yeah. You don't know. You don't know where it's going to go. It's what makes it hard for a catcher to even... He knows the knuckleball is coming, but where is it? Parables are a lot like that, especially in Luke's gospel. How many times have we talked about the parable of the lost sheep? It simply makes no sense to leave 99 sheep in the wilderness to go after the one lost sheep. That is illogical. You know, so... Kevin left all the rest of the herd to go after one lost calf. Meanwhile, the rest of the herd got out, was hit by cars, was, you know, totally decimated by this, that, or the other thing. But he, he saved the one 
heifer that got loose. Are you kidding me? Protect the flock. See how counterintuitive it is. And parables explore the grace of God, which is contrary to our sinful flesh, even as Christians. Okay. So that's the first. That's why he says, make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon. And so I said, in the church and for us as Christians, according to our faith in Christ, money means nothing to us. Status means nothing to us. Education means nothing to us. But we have money, and we have status, and we have education. Why? To employ it in the service of making friends. Now, not like the unjust steward. As I pointed out in the sermon, everybody knows he did what he did for his own benefit. But for us, we do what we do even when we spend with reckless abandon in the church, not for our benefit, but for bearing witness to the gospel of God's grace, which in itself has a reckless <coughs> abandon to it. More about that in a minute, but Randy, you have a question. Oh. Phil is on his way. In the context of what you just shared, on sometimes the, the expectation of man versus what God's intent can seem like foolishness versus whatever. The opening verse said there was a certain rich man that had a steward and the accusation was brought to him, to the rich man, that this man, the steward, was wasting his goods. Yes. Perhaps in a future one-year lectionary sermon more expounding, because you got right there at the end of the service, but there's, it, it would be interesting to expound on that as the setup for everything in the context of the three parables before and what comes. Correct. Yes, and that is a nice segue into this next point that I want to make on the parable. Thank you very much for asking the question I asked you to ask. Um, <laughs> no. But... So, um, did you hear what Randy said? You know, an accusation was brought against the unjust steward. Against the steward, claiming that he was unjust. He's got to be put out of the stewardship. Uh, of course, everyone knows that if an accusation comes against Steve, he's guilty, right? Do you remember what they said of Jesus in the Passion according to St. John? They bring him to Pontius Pilate. What accusation do you bring against this man? And the high priest says, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. That's no accusation. An accusation not only levels a charge, but proffers evidence, right? Trust me, it's Steve Lesage. He's an evildoer. So an accusation is brought against him, and we know what the steward did in terms of altering accounts after the accusation was leveled, but we don't know the nature of the accusation. And so... This is in a series of parables that, remember, chapters and verses in the Bible are just handy to find your way around. But unfortunately, they sometimes create arbitrary divisions. So it's in a sequence of parables, lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal sons, unjust steward. And at the beginning of chapter 15, that sets up those three parables that... Uh, that Randy pointed out, they were murmuring that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. 
he receives the likes of the scoundrel Jordan and eats with him, which is a picture of being brought into the fellowship of forgiveness. So they're accusing him of squandering God's gifts when he forgives sins, when he delivers the outcast and the downtrodden whom the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders of the people did not believe were worthy. This goes back to the age-old question, why did the Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah? It turns fundamentally on a rejection of the grace of God. He can't be the Messiah because he forgives sinners. Not on the basis of them doing something to make up for their sins, like we might allow Jordan back into the church if he grovels on the ground, pays a lot of money to the whatever fund, and then promises never to do anything bad again, then we might let him back in. Because after all, that's no more than right. It would be unjust and a squandering of God's grace to let him in solely on the basis of repentance. But that's what Jesus did. So on the one hand, he is not the unjust steward who cheats people. On the other hand, He's a lot like the unjust steward because an accusation was brought against him. You are squandering God's good gifts of grace. And that accusation was made by those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And right before chapter 15, it talks about how they had made a God out of money and a God out of wealth. Okay, So this is what the parables inspire in us. And that is opportunity to pause and meditate upon the grace of God. So here, we've come back to this, now Randy told me this morning, five years we've been on the one-year series. Is that right? So we come back to it again. And we're still scratching our heads and thinking about it. Which is the nature of meditation? Because remember, we're meditating upon how God is different than we are. How the grace of God is radically different than the way our sinful flesh acts. And we can, we can baptize, so to speak, and sanctify our sinful flesh so as to think it is good to be nice to the nice and it is proper to be nasty to the nasty. And now I switched the person, Steve. Did you notice that? Yeah. Okay. F- further questions or, or comments? John? You help <laughs> this time around. <laughs> Marty? You're totally lost. Okay. It's so the recording can hear. And I don't the master represents, I mean, if he said it's good that he did that, what is he representing? Who is the master? Yeah, who's the master? Okay. The master is first anybody who's a master. On the surface level, anybody who's a master. So, John, did you have any employees work for you ever? Sure. Okay, so John was a master of those employees. 
and he finds out one of his employees, you know, schnookered him, but he's got to honor the, what he did. But John says, you were pretty clever. While you still had the authority, you did this. I didn't. I fired him. You fired him. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so we're not approving, but just saying it's, it's not approving, right. It's, okay. that's, that's Jesus' point. The sons of this world are sometimes more clever, more shrewd in their age than the, than the sons of the kingdom. And what's the shrewdness? Ironically, paradoxically, they understand the benefit. This, this unjust steward understood the benefit of being merciful. Now, his motivation was self-service. Okay? And in that sense, he's completely different than Christ, whose motivation in dying on the cross was not to serve himself, but to serve us, to save us. But secondly, the master is a lot like God the Father, and the steward is a lot like Jesus. And they made accusations against Jesus that he was squandering God the Father's good gifts. Why? Because he gave it to sinners like you and me. And that ain't right. Okay? So, I know sometimes we... We, we look at, this is common for the Western mind, I think. Pastor Christensen can explain this, what I can't explain, okay? And we, we like to think in only black and white terms. So the idea that the master could be this earthly master, or the master... You know, which is it? Is he, does he signify an, any ordinary earthly master or God the Father? To say yes to that question is not, um, is not natural for us. Randy? In the context of the parable, with the end state of accounts with the debtors that the unjust steward ultimately went to be closer to what we would think the master's original intent was. Say that again. Say, I, I missed you that. The unjust steward reduced the debt. He reduced the debt, right. Would it be reasonable to think that the ultimate reduced debts are closer to what the master intended for the debtors as opposed to the starting state? Because I've heard it said, you know, the, the imagery of sharecroppers and the steward perhaps had been charging a rate higher, intending to get the master more money or more goods, but the master didn't intend it to be at that oh, I level. See, I and see. That, that would tie back to the accusations. Well, yes. It was just a way to think of the steward didn't pull one over the master. Although he did in, from the standpoint that what the signature on the accounts was the master has to honor. Okay. Wally. Uh, there seems to be an issue of, of harvesting people. Uh, the final harvest at this time was, uh, uh, that's the goal, to harvest men or to harvest their crop or... So the Lord of the harvest. Lord. <laughs> looking out over Lord, the harvest. Right. And uh, God... The master, let's say, was had already entrusted the servant uh, to uh, work the fields and 
um, figure out a way to get the harvest in. I'm just saying it's an, an analogy to me with uh, of making sure that the final harvest comes in no matter how it gets in. There's going to be a harvest time where... Yeah, well, in the, in the plot of um, Shirley, and certainly in, in Luke, is repeated what's also in Matthew about the harvest being plentiful and the labors are few. Here, the, the debtors have purchased grain, or they've purchased oil, and they owe for the grain. They owe for the oil. Um, so... Uh, I think the, certainly, I, I think that's the focus here, especially for this, for this parable. And, and, you know, a point of divergence here, he, he reduces the debt, Jesus completely and totally cancels the debt, okay? All right, let's, all right, Pastor, right behind you, Jim Bailey. Uh, thank you for clearing up an area of pastoral theology. It's amazing how respectfully and lovingly and gracefully the uh, Lutheran princes treat Charles V at the Augsburg, who's out to nail him and eliminate them. And That's right. in the introduction, they treat him so lovingly, and you go, what's going on? Don't Most you know gracious, who he's, what he's going to do yes. to you? <laughs> Most gracious, benevolent master. That's what Pastor Christensen's greeted me with after my vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and like you said, Charles didn't deserve it any more than I. Okay, so, but yeah. Okay, uh, can you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1? And, and I, um, we're just, we're just, uh, Tidying things up with uh, First and, and Second Peter uh, before September rolls around, and in September um, we're still working on this. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Pastor Christensen and I can do some stuff that really highlights the congregation at prayer and the uh, the benefits uh, of home devotions and things to think about there from a different perspective. I do. I do enjoy receiving from you, like John said this morning, can I get the congregation at prayer before next week because I'm going out of town. So that's, that's music to my ears, so we'll try to do that. But, so we hope to do that in September. But, um, and then Sunday school formal classes will begin the first Sunday in October. And um, once again, we'll be having family Bible story and Sunday school story, one and the same, appointed for the, for the particular week. So that's something to look forward to. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 25, under the theme, Sojourners of Light in a Foreign Land of Darkness. And I went ahead and <clears throat> printed for you the text from the New King James. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Sojourners, those traveling through the land, pilgrims, they're not, this is not their native land, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So Peter has a firm grasp on the understanding that even Christians still have fleshly lusts, which is beyond sexual desire, but any kind of appetite of the flesh that insists upon things that God hasn't given. 
having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, the nations, and here the thought is the the unbelievers with whom you rub shoulders with in the world, that when they speak against you as evildoers, as the world does today, they may, by your good works which they observe, and the good works here are those works that flow from our faith in in the grace of God, glorify God in the day of visitation. So I've got some questions, and in the final moments here, I want to just kind of zip through these questions for you that summarize some of where we have been in this uh, study. Why might we call this world a foreign land of darkness? Thoughts here? Don't everybody speak at once. This world a foreign land. Question, is it like, is, is this world the way God intended it to be originally? Okay, Angela? The first thing that comes to my mind is we, we are but strangers here. Yes, so why, why, why might we call it a foreign land? Peter does this. Heaven is our home. Yes, why? What's characteristic about this land? This land is my land. Sin. Sin. Yeah, the problem of sin, of unbelief, of this works righteous battle that we were talking about earlier in our discussion of the parable of the unjust steward. So this world is a foreign land of darkness, darkness referring to sin, to unbelief, to rejection of God's goodness and love in Christ. One could extrapolate from this, you know, what are we doing here? It leads into the next question. Why can we call Christians sojourners of light? Randy. Because we follow Christ. Because we follow Christ, who is the light of the world. So there is picking up that phrase, sojourners of light. Christ is the light. We follow him. Secondly, now it goes back to your, you know, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. But we're passing through this foreign land of darkness, this foreign land of sin and of unbelief and of rejection of Christ. Okay? So we're passing. But why doesn't, uh, why doesn't, the Lord just rapture us. You know, we come to faith in Christ, poof, then we're gone. We come to faith in Christ, poof, when, why stay? Because I'm, I'm a believer now, and maybe something will happen, I lose my faith. Why not rescue me? Even Luther said the greatest thing that could happen to a child after baptism would be that the child dies. Because the idea is the child is saved in baptism and immediately is with the Lord. Joseph, So what would be the purpose of Christians left on earth? To spread the word, okay, in both word and in deed, the way in which we live, which is what, you know, by doing good, you know, if they speak against you for doing good, so we're actually doing good when we gather together and pray for Governor Evers, President Biden, the Congress, and so forth, and desire their welfare for the benefit of the world. Go ahead. Like, to, like the unjust steward, our purpose isn't just to receive, it's also to having received to and be a part of this world and a part of others. That's part of what it is to be. And human. for the sake of Christ, for the sake of faith. 
which is something that the Old Testament church of the children of Israel were most on target when they were most radically unique from the world around them. That's what made them attractive. It's, it's one of the things about our liturgy. You don't see anything like the church's liturgy, historic liturgy, out there in the world. If the church starts being in their church services, like what you could see down at Summerfest or at State Fair, well, then what's the difference? They do a better job of that than we would. No, what the church does is unique when it gathers together. And it's not only for our benefit, but as a witness to the world, for we're sojourners of light, the light is Christ. What are the fleshly lusts which war against the soul? Now here, as I mentioned in the intro, it's not just sexual desire, but any appetite of the flesh that makes a god out of money, wealth, position, status, honor, acceptance, you name it. So fleshly lusts war against the soul. Here the soul, the very life of a Christian, whose life is ordered entirely by the gospel and faith in Christ. Jordan. Anything we idolize over Christ would fit that. Yep. Now, what does it mean to have conduct honorable among the Gentiles? This is this Marty, this is like the parable of the unjust steward. If the world is full of darkness and unbelief that hates Christians, how can Christians ever do something that would be considered honorable among the Gentiles? But if we sacrifice ourselves in some way for the benefit of another, for the undeserving and the unworthy, it is difficult at times, even for the unbelieving world, to gainsay that. Even though it's happening, like with respect to abortion, you, you, can, have, you can have the um, clinics that help moms, pregnant moms, that do all of the kinds of these things for them. And of course, the most radical and the most ardent pro-abortionist speaks against that as evil. Is that stunning? However, you even see it in the world today. The vast majority of Americans really do think that it's a terrible thing to murder a child in the ninth month of pregnancy. Okay. So when we bend over backwards to help mothers keep their children, to care for them, or uh, sponsor adoptions and so forth, or provide temporal support for, for moms, uh, it's difficult even for the world of unbelief to gainsay that. So there's one example of conduct honorable among the Gentiles. What does the world identify in Christians that causes the change, the charge that they are evildoers? Again, what does the world identify in Christians that causes the charge that they are evildoers? Doers. There's a couple of things here. Angela? The world would say we are judgmental. The world would say that we're judgmental. That we're judging 
Why? Because the world would say love is love. The world would say a woman's body is her body. Love is love, acceptance of right. everything you want says, to be. The world says whatever you feel warm and fuzzy about, go ahead, do it, right? We don't see that. We are taught different rules. And by us... So we're evildoers because we hold to the authority of God's word. Right. Uh, we're evildoers because Jesus means more to us than acceptance in the world around us. Okay? Uh, we're accused, like Jesus was accused, we're accused of being bigots, okay, loveless, and so forth. Now, here's something, and this is the thing that I was concerned about with the whole St. Peter option, even um, in some of my discussions at the Making the Case conference from Issues, we've got to make certain that we are hated for the right reason. Okay? So if we're accused of being bigoted, it dare not be because we refuse to love someone who is living a lifestyle contrary to the word. Okay? Instead, our sinful flesh is tempted, and that's why Peter has the warning here, our sinful flesh is tempted to live in a self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude towards those. So when they speak against us at, as evildoers, we have to make certain that it's on the basis of God's word and a confession of the truth. Not because we played into a characterization of what Christians are, loveless, hateful, narrow-minded, bigoted, racists. Philip. That the law is preached for the sake of the gospel and that we're not, I thank God, I'm not like. Correct. That's it. That's it. Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's spot on. Okay, what are the good works or deeds of Christians, and where does Jesus speak of them? What are the good works or deeds of Christians? All right, I'm going to give you a, a Chuck. Well, instead of Matthew, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What's interesting about that, then, is Jesus puts very concrete parameters to that. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and abuse you. Okay? That is then leading into the day of visitation. Here again, Marty, double meaning here, but they're related. We can think of visitation as when Jesus comes again in glory, or when Jesus came and during his earthly ministry. But his visitation continually comes today as the church lives Christ to the world, praying for the enemies and the persecutors and the slanders and so forth. Okay? So um, that's taking up what is the day of visitation. Now look at the submission to government here. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, in the epistles, when you have Lord standing alone, the person of the Trinity most commonly being referred to is Jesus. 
who is Lord. So submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Ordinance of man, every civil law, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For, among the things fascinating about Peter's first epistle here is he writes it uh, not too many years prior to his own eventual martyrdom, his crucifixion under the emperor, Nero. Um, he also writes it during a time in which Christianity is not officially recognized by the empire and in which both the Jews are persecuting Christians that's part of the fiery trial, and how the Jews especially incited the Gentiles in persecution against Christians. And sometimes they had assistance from the government, sometimes they did not. Sometimes they had governmental protection, sometimes they did not. So in verse 14, he talks about the parameters and the purpose for which God instituted government, sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. So when a government and a society does not punish evildoers, then the government or society is not doing what God has given the society to do. And for the praise of those who do good, when the society and the government does not reward law-abiding citizens for doing good. So those two related and fundamental aspects of why God instituted government. Um, with, if there were no sin, there'd be no need for government. But the need for government and the rule of law is there because of the problem of, of sin. So governments exist to punish evildoers and to reward or praise those who do well. That's in our relationships horizontally with one another in society and in culture. What's happening in our world today, but it's happened down throughout history, is when that is turned upside down, where justice is perverted, where the criminal goes free, and the law-abiding and those who do good uh, are made to forfeit their rights. But his main point here is submit yourselves to the ordinance in every way that doesn't violate what? God's word. For this is the will of God. So it is the will of God that you pay your taxes. It is the will of God that you honor the king. That by doing good, so that's part of the doing good. I pay my taxes. I vote. I participate in lawful assembly. It's not wrong to seek redress before the government, but there is a proper constitutional way to do it. So that includes part of the doing good. You may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And I like both Paul and Peter use wisdom and foolishness similarly. Wisdom is related to faith. It's related to the, to the cross. It's related to the gospel. Foolishness is related to unbelief, a rejection of the gospel, the works righteous ways of the flesh. So by doing good, you know, you pray for the civil authorities. It's one of the things that Pavi Rosinen in her presentation at the Making the Case conference talked about. Have you heard it, Paul, by the way? I mean, she gave an excellent 
testimony to what it is to be a Christian in a world that hates you. And she was unjustly accused of hate crimes. And then she chronicled her life story and everything that she did um, in her testimony to the truth. And in case you don't remember who this was, she is the medical doctor in Finland, a member of parliament, who had written a track about biblical human sexuality, marriage, family, against homosexuality and same-sex marriages and so forth. And she, along with Bishop Poyola, were charged with hate crimes and could have gone to prison for it. But she was able to chronicle everything that she did and her witness to the truth without rancor, without bitterness, caused some homosexuals to write to her and say, you've changed my life, I'm renouncing this lifestyle. But had she played into the stereotype that Christians are angry, bigoted, bitter human beings, they just hate people who are not like them, that never would have happened. Okay? So here, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, we're free in Christ, yet not using liberty, the freedom we have in Christ, as a cloak for vice. But as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And what that is simply doing, those, those commands or admonitions are the call to live by faith in the gospel. So I've already answered the question for you, what were human institutions and governments of Peter's day? And what were the purposes of government? We talked about that, punish evildoers, reward those who do good. And we've just now talked about, with Pavi Rosnan, an example of doing good that would put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. How is our Christian freedom to be used as an opportunity to confess Christ? And this is where we will begin next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Remember, if you're not here because you're on vacation, uh, Bible classes and so forth are posted online.